Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, China and Canada, their relations. At what state is it at? We talk detainees and canola. Trump and his family are suing Deutsche Bank and Capital One in an effort to block subpoenas for their financial records. What is this? Is this a smoking gun or presidential harassment? And an ISIS leader who hasn't been seen in five years rears his ugly head. What does that mean to the ongoing battle on terror? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We uh, have not talked, uh, and there was a while when we were chatting quite a bit about China-Canada relations, and uh, it has pretty much subsided now that it appears that the extradition of the Huawei CFO is uh, in the hands of the United States now, and in... There's not much we have left to do there. Uh, We are now hearing information that China has sentenced another Canadian to death. This is in regard to, I believe, a drug case uh, from several years ago, dating back to 2012. To talk more about all of this and, uh, you know, from detainees right to canola, let's bring in Charles Burton, Associate Professor, Department of Political Health, or sorry, Political Science, Department of Political Science, and healthy political science, I might add. Brock University, he is with us now. Charles, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good to speak with you. I, I wish it was healthier political science than what we're seeing these days in Canada and China, though. It is very bizarre and, and certainly shows no sign of slowing down. What can you tell us about this latest case and involving this Canadian? And I understand this goes back to 2012. Yeah, I mean, the, the case uh, was uh, was tried in 2012. Um, it's a case of manufacture of amphetamines in South China and Guangdong province for export. There are a lot of people involved in the ring, including five foreign nationals, uh, one Canadian, one American, and four Mexicans. Uh, the fact that only the Canadian was sentenced to death, um, you know, in, in a sentence hearing which all of a sudden came up uh, yesterday, as you say, after, whatever, six more than six years of not having handed down a sentence, does suggest that this is sending out a signal similar to what we saw with uh, Lloyd Schellenberg, who was also involved in uh, alleged drugs offenses who had his sentence upgraded from 15 years to to the death penalty. So I think China is continuing to try and pressure Canada to release Ms. Meng Wanzhou. And so long as we don't give any sort of meaningful response, uh, these kinds of things will will continue. We already know that the Chinese government is drawing up a list of companies that have dealings with Canada with a view to, you know, one by one by one increasing the pressure on us by causing us economic pain and, and political pain in the sense of arbitrary arrest of Canadians that, uh, that we really don't know how to address. Uh, getting back to the Schellenberg case, we remember that that was, a uh, again, similar in the sense uh, in the drug industry and such, but the case had actually gone to court and he had been sentenced and then they reopened it. Was the, are we in, which obviously seemed like a, an odd coincidence considering what was happening with the Huawei CFO. So uh, you have reason to believe or that what we're seeing now from this is that the exact same thing's happening here with this person. Yeah, I mean, normally, you know, in the normal way, uh, foreign nationals who get caught up in drugs cases, and there are a lot of them, you know, there are a lot of Canadians in prison in China for drugs or financial fraud or theft and so on. Um, but normally they don't get the bullet to the back of the head execution sentence that you typically see with the Chinese nationals who are arrested with these drugs cases. So, you know, it, it does stand out in, in a rare sentencing to death of, of a foreign passport holder, which suggests that this is connected to the ongoing crisis um, simply because we haven't had a, a Canadian executed for drugs in China ever before. So uh, how is Canada responding to this? Well, we're not, and I think that is a cause for concern. I, I think the government may be hoping that, you know, the storm will pass and Ms. Meng will will leave uh, Canada and go to the United States or, or get off and go back to China, and that we can resume our previous relationship with China, which is putting priority on building our prosperity through getting them to agree to give us enhanced access to their um, highly protected market. I'm not sure that we're ever going to be able to go back to where we were before. So I think this case has revealed to Canadians the nature of that regime, uh, that they're dishonest, that they're coercive, and essentially immoral. 
And it's therefore very hard to develop the kind of trust that you need to engage in productive economic relations when you're dealing with a regime that's, you know, got a million um, Muslims in concentration camps and is freely able to to engage in torturous interrogation of uh, Canadian citizens with no basis um, for any notion that they had violated any laws whatsoever. I'm referring to Michael Kovrick and Michael Saver right. who are in their fourth month of of black jail incarceration somewhere in China. We don't know where. Uh, you bring up an interesting point, Charles, on uh, perception, because it's been interesting to see how the perception of all of this has changed since the initial r- uh, arrest of the Huawei CFO. Um, do you think, and, and we all remember, you know, for, for decades, it's, you know, China's the golden goose. This is what it's all about. Uh, China, China, China. How does this change not only Canada's, but the world's perception of this country? Well, I think certainly, you know, intelligence agencies and security agencies around the world are collaborating together and coming to understand more clearly the threat to our democratic institutions of Chinese influence operations, you know, how they get in and affect decision makers and inhibit them from from doing programming that serves our national interests, Canada's interests, and instead tend to to comply with, uh, with what the Chinese government wants. Uh, through you know sophisticated subversion and and money politics and that kind of thing, but you know identifying the problem is not providing the solution. And right now, Canada so far has really done nothing in retaliation for what's happened. You know, we we haven't even put an ambassador back into Beijing since Mr. McCallum was um, was uh, forced to resign uh, a few months ago. So we don't have good representation there. Um, you know, we haven't uh, we haven't been cracking down on their money laundering or putting um, human rights abusers onto our, our Magnitsky list or or inspecting our uh, Chinese shipments into Canada much more closely because of their um, non willingness to address the fentanyl crisis. You know, we're doing nothing, and I think uh, as we the more we do uh, nothing, the weaker we look, and the more actions that China will take against us. Are we putting commerce, or some may see greed, some may say greed, ahead of security or human rights here? I think that that's you know in general been our overall policy um, for some time that to see the the promotion of ca- Canadian prosperity as being the main thing. So we'd make concessions on say Chinese acquisition, Chinese state acquisition of our natural resources allowing them to bring in Chinese workers to work mines up in the north, um, you know, acceding to an extradition treaty that would allow them to bring people that have run afoul of the regime and escape to Canada um, back for to face Chinese justice, which doesn't meet Canadian norms by any means. And our uh, most, I think, most worrying are, are uh, uh, conceding to them the right to acquire Canadian high-tech with potential military applications um, mm. without complaining, not to speak of not speaking out against human rights abuses or their uh, illegal acquisition of military bases in the South China Sea. So, you know, there's strong Canadian vested interests in business and politics that that uh, are supportive of Chinese interests in our country. And I think Canadians have to demand that... that uh, those people cease to 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 compromise our interests um, for their private gain. I, I think that it's something we have to expose, be transparent about, have a national debate over, and decide exactly what we want to be doing with China in the Canadian overall interest, including the Canadian values that make us such a, a great country in the world. Uh, obviously, the situation with the Huawei CFO and the d- detainees that happened, uh, but also the fentanyl crisis has, in the opioid crisis, has devastated Canada like it has um, uh, the United States in, in areas and such. Um, these people were involved in the drug industry. Is this part of the, and we know that the majority of of fentanyl that comes into Canada comes from China. Is is this all part of, um, uh, of the same network that's, that, that's also, um, killing the country? And is this, how does this change perception as well? Knowing, you know, because most of all, most of us aren't involved in what goes on with international uh, trade negotiations, but when we see something like this hit the streets, then we have a concern. Yeah, I mean, you know, Canadians are dying because the fentanyl's coming in. We've uh, tried to cooperate with the Chinese authorities um, by giving them even money for investigation 
to try and track down those factories in South China and stop the export. It's uh, you know, as you know, it's a very fine powder, so you can put quite a bit of it into just a regular letter envelope, uh, not to speak of hiding it in shipments. And the Chinese government's response was that maybe they would consider doing something about fentanyl if we allowed them to open a police office in their consulate in Vancouver, which would be presumably an office for their Ministry of State Security agents to operate out of under diplomatic protection. So, you know, my my view is that if China is not prepared to to stop this scourge, which is killing, uh, I think, something like 7,000 Canadians a year, uh, that we ought to start inspecting anything from China very carefully, uh, despite the uh, the disruption that would do to to our trade, simply to send a message to China that we're just not going to tolerate them allowing this uh, noxious substance to be sent in, regardless of their feeling that it redresses uh, history over opium in China in the 19th century or whatever. It's just unacceptable that that they would tolerate something that's so evil. Uh, without uh, without paying attention to it, you know, fentanyl is not a problem in China, but um, but methamphetamines is. So, I think the two are are regarded differently by the Chinese regime. Are you surprised that China has let this relationship go to where it is? I mean, look what you know. For example, the Huawei five G network. Look what was what was there to gain for them, and instead of uh, instead of addressing concerns, they kind of got militant. Well, they started detaining people. So. Um, uh, do they not understand the damage they're doing in you know, as part of their growth, or are they just so big they don't care? I think uh, so big they don't care is closer to the truth. Certainly they're sending a signal to other countries that if you don't comply with Chinese government demands, that you will also suffer the same uh, uh, consequences. You know, for China. But how do you sell a five G network when you when you preface it with that? I mean, yeah, it, it's like it's like you know expecting the Americans to prove that the network's secure, not the person who's supplying it. It was bizarre. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you, and I, I think, but I think the thing is that China feels that eventually they're going to get that five G network into our system and use it to to promote their geostrategic interests because they're big and they feel that we will comply with what they want because of the asymmetrical nature of our relationship. They're big, we're small, we can be bullied. In terms of, you know, the relationship as a whole, there's nothing that they get from Canada that they can't get elsewhere. So we don't really have any kind of serious leverage on them by ourselves. The only way that we could pressure them effectively would be to get other countries in the world to to work together with us, and that is really a challenging thing to do diplomatically, because everybody hopes that they can benefit from others' uh, sanctions and avoid having to do those sanctions themselves. You know, with this current situation, we've got 11 countries that send out statements of support um, for uh, Canada's um, uh, condemnation of China for the arrest of Kovrigan's favor. That's only 11 countries. Uh, we presumably approached a lot more countries to try and get them to come on board with this rather admittedly weak measure but you know morally correct where is their down. future are they just are they just are they just lost in the sauce here i mean what's their fate well um you know under chinese practice after 60 days uh, i'm sorry 6 months 6 months of intense interrogation in the black jails they should be turned over to the chinese judiciary um that 6 months will come up on june the 10th but with the case of um, of Kevin Garrett, a Canadian who was arrested in retaliation for uh, another extradition case some years ago, uh, when the six months came up, they did not um, they did not uh, send him to the judicial process. He was in the black jail for 768 days until the Chinese national in question voluntarily left Canada and went to the United States to face U.S. justice. He cut a plea bargain, which would be ideal if Miss Mung could do that. So, you know, they, they're in a desperate situation, um, and there doesn't seem to be much we can do about it, but there's certainly no evidence that they deserve this in any way. It's uh, different from the drug smugglers, where there's good cause to think that they right. violated laws, but Gar- um, but Svavor and Kovrig, uh, uh, to all we know, are completely innocent of any wrongdoing, and in fact seem to be acting in ways to promote relations between uh, China and the West, not to uh, not to spy on China in any sort of way. Uh, the Prime Minister, uh, speaking to the press on in and around the whole canola issue, uh, said that basically, you know, we got two of the world's uh, largest trading partners here, and we're caught in the middle. What can we do? Well, I mean, he uh, he's also said that this was this matter of 
the Chinese false claims that our canola uh, contains agricultural pests. Um, you know, it's completely untrue. Uh, it's a scientific-based disagreement. I think that suggests that Mr. Trudeau is still not fully getting it. This is not about a scientific-based disagreement. His request that the Chinese allow our agricultural specialists to go to Beijing to engage the Chinese on this, their, their visas are being denied or they're not hearing anything about them, of course. It just seems to me quite naive. Uh, it seems uh, it strikes me that, that this is really about the, the Meng Wanzhou matter and nothing to do with canola. And uh, I think he ought to be uh, a bit more transparent and honest with Canadians about what's going on and uh, gaining support for us taking some action that would meaningfully defend the interests of our farmers. And certainly uh, those farmers deserve compensation for for being caught up in this. This matter is arguably due to the failings of Canadian policy towards China over many years. And the farmers, you know, really shouldn't be uh, suffering the loss of their of their farms and property because of government mismanagement of Canada-China relations. They ought to be given compensation, and we ought to all take responsibility for what's happening to them. Uh, any reason to think that uh, once the uh, uh, Huawei issue gets settled, that any of this other stuff will? And uh, what is the? You talked about a deal uh, earlier on. Do you think there's a chance that uh, the Huawei CFO will not be extradited to the states? Well, I mean, there are a number of a- uh, angles here. I mean, certainly when she was um, uh, first arrested at her bail hearing. The judge that gave her these very liberal uh, bail conditions pointed out that these cases can go on for like a decade. So, you know, with delays and appeals and so on, she could be in Canada for a very long time. Uh, However, in a $14 million mansion and not in a lit cell all day. That's true. And she has family visiting her and, you know, uh, can go out there and enjoy Vancouver. I think she's planning to to upgrade her academic qualifications uh, by, by undertaking a, a study program while while waiting. Um, you know, it's possible the United States would offer a plea bargain to her uh, contingent on her voluntarily leaving Canada to get this matter resolved. That would be uh, satisfactory. The other thing is that she, in May, she will be challenging the extradition hearing process altogether on the basis that the process of her arrest at the Vancouver airport violated the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And so, you know, there's a glimmer of a chance that the case could be thrown out and she could just return to China. Once she's not in Canada, I think China will want to reestablish relations with Canada as they were before. The will that be enough for us? Will, will that be good for us? Uh, you know, okay, once everything's even, oh, it's all back to normal. How is this going to change things moving forward? You were saying that, you know, you, you doubted whether relations could, relations could get back to where they were in, in a shorter period of time. Where does this leave the Huawei 5G network, do you think? Is it ever going to get here? I don't think Canadians would tolerate it, frankly. I mean, the evidence that, that it could be used for... Um, espionage or to get information about critical Canadian infrastructure and in case there's some conflict between China and the United States which goes beyond uh, trade into other areas and say over the South China Sea or Taiwan you know I think that most uh, clear-thinking Canadians think it would be crazy to source the 5g from a company like Huawei that that evidently has murky connections to Chinese security and military when we can acquire the stuff from European countries like uh, Nokia and Ericsson that uh, we don't have those concerns about. So I, I, I just feel that uh, Canadians are, are not going to put up with, with uh, these appeasing government policies that past governments have done that have benefited their, um, their political and business friends. I think Canadians really want us to be engaged in a policy which serves Canada's interests and will demand that, that governments do that or we'll vote them out of office. I think that's the real solution. But whether we can get that Canadian awareness up high enough or uh, whether Canadians will buy into the, the line that promoting our prosperity with China is, is the larger thing and the other stuff is simply collateral damage, that remains to be seen. But I do think that the mood is changing in Canada and there's a lot of anger towards China and a lot of worry. And I think that anger and worry might be a good thing. Well, it seemed as if Canadians were naive to think, well, you know, maybe China's changing. Maybe they're not, they're, they're lightening up a bit. And clearly, <laughs> this is proven it's not the case. Uh, Charles Burton has been with us, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Brock University. Charles, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good to speak with you. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. They want to subpoena the records for Deutsche Bank and Capital One to get all the records, financial records of Donald Trump. Uh, is it a wise political strategy? What is this? Smoking gun or political harassment, as the president calls it? Let's bring in Michael Diamond, conservative political pundit, upstream strategy group. He is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Nice to have you here again. Thanks for having me. So what is this? Is this smoking gun or political harassment? Is this well, politics? You look, I think, you know, that's going to depend on if, if you're Adam Schiff or if you're Donald Trump. It, uh, I think there's validity to, to both those arguments. But uh, I, I think that if, if you look at uh, previous investigations, Whitewater, for example, in the end, uh, you know, you have two polarized camps, but those in the middle generally tend to take some sympathy for the person that they view uh, being targeted by the investigation, as they did with Bill Clinton. It did not hurt his popularity. It hurt him eventually with his legacy, but not his popularity. So I think that uh, looking at this, that there will be a perception that this is uh, political harassment. So if in the end, uh, if in the end, Michael, we all end up in the same place, which it seems to happen with this president. Why bother going through all this? You know, I, I think that's an excellent point. I think that there's no political advantage right now to the Democrats to tying the nation up, tying the operations of Congress up, and tying the presidency up in investigation. And, you know, he can call it a witch hunt. They can call it an investigation or an inquiry. It doesn't matter. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, they're not going to remove him from office. That's what an election is going to have to be for. And that they would be much better off being the official opposition in the Congress uh, and uh, supporting whomever uh, their eventual nominee against Donald Trump is. Or if he has done something wrong, is it up to them to bring it forward? I mean, absolutely. I mean, look, if there's a high crime or misdemeanor here, move ahead with impeachment. And if there is a high crime or misdemeanor that's been committed, um, you know, it would be incumbent upon Republicans in the Congress to remove him as they were prepared to do to Richard Nixon. You know, Bill Clinton was impeached because at the end of the day, he did break the law. And that is uh, certainly unbecoming of a president. But uh, here it seems that there's a lot of getting close to it. There's a lot of bad people around. But, uh, uh, you know, two years and the endless investigations. Uh, what what, ha- what have we seen? You know, what does the president's uh, attempted purchase of the Buffalo Bills have to do? with uh, anything that went on in his campaign or in his presidency. How much do we know about Donald Trump compared to past presidents, other past presidents? Well, we know a great deal more and a great deal less. And I know that makes no sense, but we know a great deal more because this is a guy who has been in our living rooms on TV, has been on the front pages of grocery store tabloids for decades. You know, I was, um, I think, four or five years old the first time I remember seeing Donald Trump and it would have been 89 or 90 and I had to ask my parents you know what divorce was because his divorce was the most public and famous divorce at the time so I mean Donald Trump we know him a great deal about him uh, but then we also That's, it's interesting deal. to know Michael when he had an impact on your life and what it was that's hilarious over <laughs> he, divorce of all things he destroyed uh, he destroyed <laughs> my uh, he destroyed my innocence uh, you, I, I'd hate to tell you the conversation I had to have with my mother in 1998 about what Bill Clinton was doing under the death of the Oval Office. Uh, But uh, we also know a great deal less about Donald Trump because he won't release his tax return. So for presidents or presidential candidates, we knew where they were making money. We knew how much money they were making. With Donald Trump, what we know is that there's a great deal of unknown also. So we know a great deal about his personal life, about his uh, infidelity. But what we don't know is, you know, where is he making his money? How much money does he actually have? And one thing we do know is that for years, the you know, you'd have a lot of billionaires call Forbes magazine and say, how dare you say I have as much that much money? I don't have that much money. I'm not that rich. Hmm. Uh, but you had Donald Trump calling every year. How dare you say I have so little money? I'm way richer than you think. So are the Democrats using the right strategy here? Is 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 uh, should they be should they be chasing Donald Trump or should be they or should they be blazing their own path? They should be chasing voters and uh, mm. and uh, political harassment and uh, you know endless investigation is not the way to do that. I mean, I think Donald Trump showed us that uh, folks were sick of politics as usual, and this is politics as usual. Okay, what about the Mueller report? Because again, you know, we're we're jumping into an investigation and then in the very end ending up in the same place. Is there any more fallout from this? Is there anything more there that can damage him? 
Look, no, the the Mueller investigation and the report was an important step because there's certainly a dark cloud around the election and the, around the presidency. But without anything concrete, without without actual without an actual smoking gun, without a tape, uh, as you had in uh, Watergate, uh, let him be president. Let the voters decide. Uh, so, uh, at the end of the day, will will there be anything that has been redacted or anything that we that, that hasn't made public that hasn't been made public that will be of any significance in the long run here? Look, I mean, in the long run, you know, when when you know, um, in, in decades from now, when all records are finally released, uh, as you see right. uh, with you know the Kennedy Papers, for example, and the, the uh, uh, Warren Report, these will be matters of great public uh, interest and of political intrigue. There is nothing. I, I will say this: Donald Trump will be president until January twentieth of twenty twenty one, perhaps longer. But he will not be removed from office before them by any legal or procedural means. And I think it's incumbent on the Congress to start governing instead of uh, political gridlock. Impeachment is not a tool to override the electorate. Uh, Trump's family's reaction to this, uh, to sue the bank and, 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 and to try to hold this up, why not just let them peek at what they want? Is there anything there that's... You know, even to have him stand up and say, go and look at all my dirty laundry, enjoy it, uh, as opposed to making it appear that he's hiding something. Is this the best approach for him? Probably not, but it's always worked for him. And, uh, you know, this is a man who's the first presidential candidate in recent times to not release the tax records. Uh, And uh, there is there is something he's hiding. And that's that he's not nearly as rich as he wants the public to think he is. Hmm. And that is an obsession of his. And, and, and it's, it's really a, a shame because I would burn every last dollar I have to take half of what he's worth uh, because this is an incredibly wealthy man. But, uh, but he's always been obsessed with having a uh, perceived larger net worth than his actual net worth, which is very, very large. Can the family not separate themselves from him and, you know, give us some sort of snapshot or capsule of whatever everybody's, you know, wanting so badly and then move on? Or is that impossible? No, because I think I would imagine their finances, if you look at, you know, uh, the two boys' jobs and what Ivanka's job was before uh, all of this went on, they are so intertwined. There's a brand, there's a development company, there's a management company, there's a licensing company, and uh, it's all so intertwined that uh, you couldn't reveal, uh, take a peek into uh, Eric Trump's finances without revealing too much about the company that they tried to shield. What happens when the man dies? <laughs> What's going to happen to his estate? It will be in court for a lifetime. Well, the the well, I mean, unless you know, I mean, I'm sure the uh, the uh, you know the the bequeathments will be quite uh, quite well taken care of. But uh, uh, what what will be interesting is like that's unlikely to ever happen because I don't know if you. One thing we do know about Donald Trump is, according to his goofy doctor, he's the most healthy person <laughs> to ever live, and so Donald Trump's going to outlive us all. Oh, on that note, uh, what about sleepy Joe Biden? How much of an impact has this announcement made uh, this week that he is now running for president? Well, for all the talk that Joe Biden had a bad uh, kickoff uh, for his uh, third presidential campaign, uh, the first one, which was in 1988, was also the first year Donald Trump toyed with the idea of running for president, by the way. But for all the talk that it was a disastrous launch, he actually went up in polls about six so I think it is uh, that, that, that he does even have room to grow, even though he is, you know, well ahead of Bernie Sanders, who's his uh, closest competitor. Uh, I think there's two factors there. One, I think it was Joe Biden certainly had the most name recognition, but I think there were a lot of people who were unwilling to say they were supporting him because they were unsure that he'd run. Uh, so he still has some room to grow, I think. And he'll also have to show that the gas that he had, especially in that 88 campaign where he was forced out because of a plagiarism scandal, that he's not going to repeat the mistakes of the past. But I think, uh, you know, all the talk about uh, about his personal conduct and his uh, invasion of personal space, that's not going to have an impact when uh, the votes start uh, being cast in Iowa. Uh, what will be problematic potentially for Joe Biden is that we've all lost our minds and no longer able 
able to contextualize things that happened in the past. So this is a man who was in the Senate since, I believe, 1972. And he's going to have a lot of votes that he shouldn't apologize for, but he's falling into this PC nonsense trap of apologizing for things that may have very well been the right thing to do when he did them. Many have commented on how many uh, nominees there are for, or there will be by the time this is all over, for a leader of the Democratic Party. Um, I guess alluding to this could be quite a race. Will it or will Biden just go in and shut them all down and let's move on? And this will be less a discussion about what the direction of the Democratic Party is and more of who, who can win this. Yeah, well, look, I think electability is going to be the key uh, factor here. You know, in 2012, Mitt Romney was nominated by the Republicans because there was such overwhelming hatred of Barack Obama by the Republicans that all they wanted was someone who could win. So they settled on someone they didn't particularly like. It didn't work out. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton didn't invoke that same sort of hatred of the Republicans. So in 96, they went with the guy they wanted. Still didn't work out. But this time, I think you're going to see electability will be uh, the driving force uh, for uh, uh, who, who they who they nominate? The Washington Post uh, maintains a uh, Twitter account. I think it's called "On This Day" or "Who Led On This Day," and they look at previous cycles. And at this point in two thousand and eight, Rudy Giuliani was the certain Republican nominee, and Hillary Clinton was the certain Democratic nominee. So things are going to mm. change a lot. So Joe Biden shouldn't count any chickens, but he's also not a. Uh, gone goose, as many people want to us to So will the Democrats eat themselves on the way to choosing a new leader? Uh, it, it could be nasty. Look, I mean, if you look at uh, these inter-party squabbles are often the uh, the most dangerous and deadly. If you look, you know, a Canadian example, uh, one of the liberals uh, race to replace Paul Martin, uh, you know, it was the debates between those candidates that finished the Fendion off ever before Stephen Harper ever had to even think about him. So if they're not careful, if they if they if they if they fire on each other, and we've already seen some of that, instead of firing on Donald Trump, uh, they will inflict uh, damage to the party. So are we going to see a much different Democratic Party? What about the Bernie Sanders factor? Well, that's what's interesting, is that we have a few candidates who you could line up in that left-wing fringe of the Democratic uh, uh, Party, um, Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and some others. And last time, that, that is a sizable pool. That might even be, you know, the plurality of the voter pool for, for the Democrats, if you're to look at the various tribes within the party. Uh, but last time, that allowed... Um, that allowed Sanders to do very well, to win some states, to be very competitive. But it was in a two-way race. So, you know, between Sanders and Warren splitting that vote, and you have Joe Biden taking the, you know, it's hard for me to say this because at one point in time, Joe Biden was the second most liberal member of the United States Senate. But if the moderate path is freed up for Joe Biden, he's going to be able to win in Iowa in this huge race you know, potentially 25, 30 percent of the votes, which will uh, cement him as a front runner. How do you think Hillary's feeling these days? You know, last night there was a video circulating of uh, Hillary doing a dramatic reading of portions of the Mueller report. I thought it would have been nice if she went and filmed a dramatic reading of portions of the Star report and maintained <laughs> that her husband inflicted on the nation. Uh, but, uh, you know, look, Hillary Clinton, I mean, she has been defeated for president by two men who I think she sees herself as superior to. And it's got to be really hard. And I think, you know, uh, the desire to run again, uh, the most, the most, um, obvious sign that someone's going to run for president is that they've run for president in the past. Mm. So this is not easy for her to sit out, I'd imagine. Uh, and in such a large race, there could have even been a path there for her to win the nomination. But uh, the American people have moved on from that family. How, who do you think the, uh, the American Democrats would get, would get behind, Biden or Hillary? I think that uh, with Joe Biden in the race, uh, she probably wouldn't have a path. Had she got in before and sort of went jab squeezed out Mitt Romney, maybe she would have had a path of that more moderate establishment uh, uh, side of the party uh, against you know, Warren and Sanders and a bunch of people who no one ever ever heard of. Uh, but uh, Biden uh, eats that oxygen. Uh, Donald Trump says a lot of things that just don't really seem to make much sense. But he did say something the other day that I thought was fascinating. And he basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said if it wasn't for Biden and Obama, he wouldn't be there. I mean, that's the whole reason people elected him. Do you think that has resonance? 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's like you you elect your successor, quite frankly. And that uh, had George Bush not uh, not allowed a couple of frat boy friends of his to uh, run foreign policy, Barack Obama never would have become president. Had Barack Obama not been so out of touch with average Americans, Donald Trump would have never been president. And had Bill Clinton not treated the Oval Office like a burlesque palace, uh, George W. Bush never would have been elected president. President. So your actions will have consequences. And I think, you know, uh, Obama and his crew of supporters should remember that it was their aloofness from the struggles, their, their, their callous indifference from the struggles of the working poor uh, that, uh, that elected Donald Trump. I say the same thing about Kathleen Wynne. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Michael Diamond's been with us, conservative political pundit, upstream strategy group. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. A nicest leader has appeared in a video for the first time in five years and is vowing revenge for the loss of territory in Syria and Iraq. I uh, want to talk about that and a, uh, a mass murder plot that was, uh, uh, I guess, designed for California has been thwarted. We're going to talk about that as well. Phil Gursky is with us, President and CEO, Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, and is with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. All right. First of all, let's talk about uh, the video of the uh, ISIS leader, uh, uh, Abu uh, Bakar uh, al-Baghdadi, appeared in a video, first time in five years. Uh, Your thoughts on the authenticity of the video? Is there any reason to think or to be suspicious about it? No, I don't think so. I mean, I'm not an expert in video technology and, you know, real-life fakes and stuff like that. But from everything that I've seen, all the analysis that I've read over the past 48 hours seems to me that it really is him. Uh, he's gained a bit of weight, like we all do when we get older. I certainly have. Um, his beard looks kind of funny. It's half gray, half white, half red, half brown. That's four halves, I suppose. But no, Scott, it seems to be the real, he's the real McCoy. And he's, like you said, he hasn't been seen from in, in five years. But um, rumors of his death were very much, uh, Mark, in a Mark Twain way, highly exaggerated. We did hear uh, a, a lot who thought or, or, or uh, just imagined that he, he had passed. How significant is it that we find out he is alive? Well, he certainly, you know, the Russians claimed to have killed him on at least two occasions. The fact that he's alive clearly serves as an inspiration for those who still believe in Islamic State. Now, Islamic State has no longer has the territory it once controlled. The so-called caliphate is no longer there. Um, but he is, and, and that can act as sort of a rallying cry, if you will, for the truth, both those who are still Islamic State, of which there are tens of thousands from what I've seen, and then you've got all the affiliates around the world, like what happened in Sri Lanka on, on Easter Sunday. Then you've got the wannabes, right? We've had wannabes here in Canada who claim to have been inspired by Islamic State, have Islamic State flags in their cars, for example. So I think that the, the lesson to be learned here is that he's still there, and people can say, hey, you know, the boss is still there, and I guess we're still in business. Uh, he said that uh, he, uh, obviously, due to the loss of, of, of areas in Syria and, and Iraq and his territory and such, that uh, now vows retaliation. What does that mean for North America? It sounds, it sounds like there's another bin Laden-type attack coming. Well, it, it, I'd be careful, Scott, with drawing a line between what he says and, and what happens. Like, there's a lot of bravado there. He even claimed in the video, you know, this was kind of our plan to create a caliphate and then lose it. Uh, yeah, yeah, like, like that's right. Um, so he's clearly kind of, you know, trying to put a positive spin on things. But I think the bottom line is, is that, and we, we've seen this for decades, Scott, there's people who believe in this ideology, they believe in the message, and they could use the reappearance of Baghdadi to act as a bit, a bit of a spur, a bit of an encouragement uh, to carry out attacks. There's no guarantee Right. But I certainly think that people might say, hey, um, I guess we're not dead after all. And maybe I should go ahead with my plans to carry out a, you know, a vehicle ramming attack or a firearms attack. Or as we saw in a Canadian tire in Scarborough in the summer of 2017, a woman with a golf club claiming to be ISIS. So, you know, it's all over the map. But I wouldn't want to say we're going to see a direct relationship between this video and an upsurge in attacks, either here in Canada or anywhere else for that matter. Whenever we hear or see of such attacks, um, many wonder if there is 
uh, some sort of terrorist affiliation. Many times it's smaller cells or somehow those that are influenced. Usually when we think of warfare, we think of territory, overtaking territory, which has happened uh, in, in this situation with the caliphate. How more? How much more difficult is this to deal with? Because it doesn't. it's obviously not a territorial thing. It's a movement that, that, that crosses uh, lots of borders and is easily, easily influenced through social media. So h- how do you how do you tell whether it's dead or alive when theoretically there's somebody somewhere in the part of the planet that's that's following it? Yeah, you you raised some really good points, Scott. And, and you know, when I was with thesis, we, we, we divided this kind of phenomenon into really kind of three levels, whether it's Al Qaeda, Islamic State, or whatever. There's the core group, and they tend to be geographically lo- you know located. So Al Qaeda was kind of in Afghanistan, and Islamic State was kind of in Iraq and Syria. Then there's the, the affiliates, and both Al-Qaeda and Islamic State had affiliates and still have around the world. Then there's the third level we call the inspired. And the people that have carried out attacks here in Canada and the States, they would be, be the third category for, for the most part. There's no Islamic State affiliate in Canada. Um, the people who claim to be inspired by Islamic State could have had some kind of contact with them or not. I mean, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a free-for-all. If I, if I claim to act in the name of the terrorist group, that makes me part of the terrorist group. Well, it doesn't really, but from the terrorist group's perspective, what do you care? Yep. Right? You're a successful attack. Your, your name's all over the, the news. Your flag's all over the social media, and you get to claim it. So it's a win-win for you. So it, it, it is complicated, but what you're looking for is ideology. And the problem is, is that, you know, President Trump basically declared that Islamic State was dead, and maybe it was from a geographic footprint perspective, but the ideology lives on, and it's just a... a it's a new manifestation of an ideology, Scott, we've been dealing with since the 1970s. Very similar to social media. Do you follow? Yes. Does that mean you're an organization that belongs to them? I don't know. I, I guess it's up to the interpretations. How are world leaders going to react to this video? Well, I, that's really that's, that's a good question. There probably will be a renewed effort to locate him and take him out. In the same way, if you remember, when, you know, Bin Laden was killed in May of 2011. Don't forget, Scott, Bin Laden lasts for almost a decade after 9-11. And, and can yeah. you imagine the effort that was being put into finding him? Mm. And it took a decade. So Baghdadi's been around, you know, since the mid-2000s, but he declared the caliphate in June 2014, so almost five years ago. I can imagine that the Americans, at a minimum, will be, you know, you know ramping up their efforts to say, where is this guy? Can a drone or an airstrike or special forces or something get, get rid of this man so he can't make more videos and inspire more people? I, I think the Russians will probably, you know, sort of ramp up their activities. So will the Iraqis. Um, Syrians, maybe, but a lot of people uh, are gunning for this guy, and the fact that he's taken a chance and, and done another propaganda video just reminds people that he's still there. And it's a bit of a poke in the eye, right? Mm. I'm here. You guys didn't get me. What are you going to do about it? A uh, $25 million bounty on his head. If he's gone, is it just a matter of months before someone else takes his place? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Um, we did see with Al-Qaeda, with the death of bin Laden, that his successor, Ayman al-Zawahiri, wasn't nearly as good a leader. He wasn't nearly as charismatic, a bit of a boring old scholarly type guy. So you could, in fact, gain some advantage if al-Baghdadi disappears, although he even I don't think he had the same charismatic appeal that bin Laden did when he was the leader of al-Qaeda. So it depends. It depends who's waiting in the wings. Um, it could be somebody uh, better, somewhere worse. You're going to have to wait and see. How does Donald Trump react to this, especially after saying that ISIS is dead? <laughs> That's an unfair question, Scott. You're asking me to predict how a man <laughs> whose foreign policy is based on Twitter is going to react to the news. Uh, I, he'll, he'll, he'll tweet something. I don't know. He'll claim that his declaration that ISIS was dead was fake news. I, I don't know, Scott. Um, if you and I together wow. could, could predict the American president's reaction to anything, we'd be bazillionaires, my friend. Uh, as you mentioned, he uh, he praised past attacks, uh, what happened in Sri Lanka and such. Do you think this will motivate? Yes and no. I think the problem is, is as I said, irrespective of whether al-Baghdadi makes the video or not, there are still people out there who believe in the ideology. And the thing is that I certainly found in my days at CSIS, and I'm still doing this some of the books I've, I've, I've been researching, it doesn't take much to inspire people. Hmm. Terrorism at its core is all about the use of violence to correct what you see as a grievance or what you see as something wrong. And look at Scott, look what happened in California on the weekend with the attack of the synagogue. Look what happened in Christchurch about a month ago now. People will always find reasons to justify the use of violence. So the video isn't going to 
help our cause, but I don't think, had the video not appeared, we would not necessarily have seen any difference anyway. Are we fighting this the right way? No, we are not. Uh, we, 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 well, yes, I'm sorry, that was too fast. Um, yes and no. I think the military emphasis is wrong. I've always, and I, I wrote in my most recent book, An End of the War on Terrorism, I think the military should have a very, very small footprint. Uh, I, I fully support types of operations that led to the capture of bin Laden. Special forces in and out, bang, you're gone. Uh, what I don't like is prolonged wars where you have occupations. I don't like airstrikes and drone strikes only because they're not nearly as effective as people say they are, meaning lots of civilians are dying. Um, not surprisingly, given where I used to work, I'm a big a fan of security intelligence and law enforcement on how to do this. But I also think that as, as society in general, we've got to do a much better job at determining why people think this is a good idea and figuring out ways to stop them from going down that pathway before they start. You know, it almost uh, there was an interesting article last week in regard to police services across the country and how and debating on on what type of expertise they should reel in in order to fight the crime that they are now dealt uh, now dealing with. You know, we think of of police chasing uh, bank robbers and murderers and and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, they want a lot more money to be put into intelligence and 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 how uh, their jobs their and and uh, what they have to do their duties have expanded. Uh, it's much the same way with the military, isn't it? It's less about guns and bombs and more about intelligence? Yeah, I think it is because, you know, if you have good information and the information has been corroborated and it's accurate and it's useful and, and you can deploy it, you make better decisions. Like I said, you know, invading a country, which the Americans did in Iraq in 2003, I mean, Scott, there's no way, other way to say this. Al-Baghdadi is a product of the American invasion of Iraq in 2003 yeah. to get rid of Saddam Hussein. Yeah. A, a very much unwanted after effect, if you will. But if you can use intelligence to, to pinpoint things, you get the types of operations like you saw in, in Pakistan and Abbottabad in 2011 with bin Laden. And I think that's a brilliant idea. You don't kill anybody who shouldn't be killed. You get the bad guy and then you don't, st- you don't stay around long enough to piss people off. Right? And because when you occupy a country, people get angry. And, and you know, as soon as uh, we occupy a country, it seems, you know, the, the next politician or within the next uh, election cycle, it's time to bring them all home. And it's that vacuum that's created when everybody leaves that, that uh, fuels what we're seeing. Well, exactly. You know, when you invade a country, Scott, it's the pottery barn rule, right? You break it, you own it. Yeah, and right. I think we're seeing that in Afghanistan. We, uh, uh, you know, even Canada, we had the forces there for a better part of a decade. Um, is Afghanistan better off now than it was in 2001? Unfortunately, the answer is no. I'm not saying that's all our fault, but clearly we went in and we, we did certain things and uh, we left. And then you know, the, the Americans are now talking peace with the Taliban. I mean, could, could you imagine this yeah. 10 years ago? I mean, it's insane. Right? Uh, all right, I, I can't let you go without asking you. Uh, federal law enforcement officials say they foiled a terror a terror plot in Los Angeles, in the area of Los Angeles, that was intended to inflict mass casualties. The lone wolf suspect, a former member of the U.S. military. Your thoughts on this case? Yeah, you know what? I saw that briefly this morning, and uh, I think I tweeted out, I, I, I've given up, Scott, on understanding this stuff. It just seems it gets weirder and weirder and weirder. Um, they're all but this is, this is exactly what we're talking about, right? Well, yeah. I mean, and this guy, you know, I, I wrote a blog piece uh, on my website about a week ago calling it, you know, tit for tat terrorism. And it now seems right. that it's like this, it's this ramping up uh, of, you know, if you do this, I'll do something even worse. Remember, remember you used to play baseball as a kid? You used to determine who was going to be at bat first. Mm. And you got a baseball bat and you put one fist over the other. That's, right. That's what terrorism's become, my friend. Everyone wants to one-up the other person. And it, as I said earlier, there's enough grievances out there to justify this. So this is a real wonky one. I'm not sure I understand it, but I'm, I'm paid to understand it, but I... I'm drawing a blank here, Scott. I'm sorry on this one. Uh, will the rest of the world now torque up intelligence on finding this ISIS leader? Do you think now it's all right? Let's get him now. I'd be surprised if if they did. I mean, I mean, I've been out of the business for five years now, uh, away from thesis, so I don't know exactly what resources, if any, are being deployed. I can, I can only imagine that they've been looking for him for a while. They didn't down tools. Like I said, it took ten years to find Bin Laden. Uh, the fact that. He's, a, he's reappeared and basically kicked us in the face and said, hi, you haven't got me yet. I think we'll get a couple of people uh, a little bit ramped up to try to maybe in, increase the efforts, but I'm pretty sure the efforts have been there for the past uh, couple of years anyway. But yeah, I think, I think you'll see an increase in resources for sure. Is there anyone who knows anything about his whereabouts? Wow. <laughs> what a great question. Um, the, well, from what I've seen, he's somewhere around the Syrian-Iraqi border. You would have thought that with 
all the military, the Russians, the Syrians, the Iranians, the Americans, God knows who in the area, they would have found them by now. But again, Bin Laden, 10 years. So sometimes what seems like a no-brainer to us actually is a lot harder than it looks. So he, if he's hiding, he's hiding in a really good place. This, this reminds me of an old Monty Python skit, you know, trying very hard not to be found. Well, he's done that pretty good for the past five years. Uh, how is he getting away? There must be a small group of people who know his whereabouts and are protecting him. How can he keep those people? How can he keep that that uh, that wall loyal? Well, he's obviously got people that, that are loyal to him. What, so just like in the Bin Laden case, what, what Bin Laden did is he didn't use any cell phones, he didn't use any computers, he relied on human couriers. And he was in and a neighborhood was, where there were other yeah. prominent military people. Yeah, so either someone was paid off or he just happened to be surrounded by people who would not give him up under, under any circumstance. You mentioned the $25 million bounty, the same thing from Bin Laden, if I remember correctly, and no one's decided to cash in on that. So he surrounded himself with people that are not going to rat him out. He's not using... Um, methods like cell phones that uh, can be intercepted. So he's keeping things close to his chest, and he's been able to do this. So it clearly, Bin Laden did it for a decade. He's done it for five years. It can be done, Scott. Does it wear him down that he is on the run this way? No, no. I mean, that's a really good question. Or, or is he just a nomad, and this is how he lives? Well, Saddam Hussein was found in a, in a little hidey hole, and they finally found him yep. after the Americans invaded. And that was years as well, so... It's hard to say. Maybe these guys see this as uh, the, the price of doing business. Maybe they see it as God's will. Maybe they see it as, well, you know, what else am I going to do? It, I, I think, hey, I can't enter his head. Um, but he always was rather reclusive anyway. So does he any less reclusive now? Not necessarily. So why do you think this is happening now? Do you think this is happening because he's admitting that he's lost that territory, uh, obviously wants to double down on Sri Lanka? Why is this coming out now? I think he probably felt he had to say something about the loss of the caliphate. Because, if, you know, this is an important thing for them, Scott. Not only the creation of the caliphate, but the fact that, that if the caliphate were to fall, it would be Armageddon, it would be the end of the world. Mm. Well, clearly, it, it, the end of the world didn't happen when the caliphate fell. So he, as a religious scholar, has to convince his followers, we actually had this plan, boys, from day one. We're kind of you know, reinventing history, if you will. So I think he probably felt that there was an obligation on his part to rally the troops and say, hey, you know, don't worry, I got your back. We've got this all figured out. I know it looks kind of, kind of wonky right now, but the plan is going ahead as planned. Um, that's probably why he's chosen this time, and to take advantage of what happened in Sri Lanka as well. So uh, we lost the caliphate, but we're going to get it back. Is that the idea here? Is he going to, re- yeah, is he going to reclaim right. territory that he's lost? Is he going to another part of the world? Well, well he's claimed that, you know, this is like stage two, where we're not going to focus so much on geographic footprint, but we're going to kind of do this in an ideological, more yeah. sort of nebulous sort of diaphanous kind of way. And is that not um, more dangerous, Phil? Well, it isn't, it isn't. I mean, I would, I would argue that it's always been the same stuff. Like yeah. I said, we've always talked about different levels, the core, the affiliated, and the, and the inspired. And, and we've kind of got the same problem. It's just been displaced a little bit. I mean, the core has gone to some extent, but some of the core have become part of the affiliates. So it's, it's kind of the same old, same old. They, just, they kind of just change uniforms. It's kind of like NHL trade deadline. You kind of play for another team, but you're, you're, you're still part of the NHL. You're still part of the, the, the larger program. And some say equally as painful. Uh, Phil Gursky has been with us, President and CEO, Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Fascinating, Phil. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Have a good day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.